Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain with the Week in Film Tech for August 15th. This is an all-black magic week. Two weeks ago, we had an all-red week. Companies are really duking it out in order to compete for the film space. We're going to have a tiny little bit of red news at the end of the episode. But it's mostly going to be black magic. The first thing we're going to talk about is the pocket cinema camera, which is going to explain the prop in my hand. I mean, you guys all know the main reason there's a prop in my hand. We've, I'm sure we've talked about this. If we haven't, if you're watching this on YouTube, we get more clicks when there's a prop. <laughs> so I hold props. So the stories this week. Blackmagic launches a new pocket cinema camera, the pocket cinema camera 6K. I have many opinions on this camera. They also did some revisions to Resolve 16, which I think are really interesting, and I want to talk about that. And then there's this little tool that they released last Thursday that... Didn't really get much press buzz, but I was really into it, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to have a little bumper of red news instead of, hey, Professor, there at the end. All that this week on The Week in Film Tech with Charles Hain for August 15th, 2019. Our first story of the week, I'm holding a lens adapter in my hand. You're not, if you're listening to it as a podcast, not watching it on YouTube, you're not seeing it. It's just a, it's a Fuji X. Everybody knows I'm a weird Fuji guy. It's a Fuji X to a PL mount adapter. Why am I holding this particular filter in my hand on this day, especially when I'm doing a podcast and most of you can't see it? So Blackmagic has come out with a new pocket camera. A little bit of context. Blackmagic has been all over the camera space for five, six, seven years now. Uh, Blackmagic started as a hardware company making video output adapters for your computer. So I've got a computer and I need an SDI signal out of it to get to a real monitor. I would buy a Blackmagic Intensity PCI card or an AJA Kona either of which would work with Apple Color and Final Touch and Final Cut Pro and all those programs. So, you know, there were a whole bunch of options back in the day. Blackmagic made a lot of them. Blackmagic made a very savvy move where they bought this software, Resolve, and then they made Resolve only work with Blackmagic hardware. So they could charge very little or even give Resolve away for free. But by giving it away for free, you had to buy the Blackmagic hardware if you wanted to get a real video signal out. And as we all know, and I say all the time, you need a real video signal to evaluate your image. You can't actually evaluate your image without a real video signal. You need that. That's vital. We're looking at Blackmagic as a a company. And then 2012, 2013, I don't remember exactly when, they started rolling out cameras. They started with the Blackmagic cinema camera, which was a 2.5K camera. But what was exciting about it and what's always exciting about Blackmagic's cameras, I'm going to be critical of some of their choices here in a second, but what's always exciting about Blackmagic's cameras is there's two big things that they give themselves a lot of freedom with in their design. One, they do not care about legacy. They are going to do whatever they think is right, and they do not worry about making it backwards compatible with all their old tech. That can be really frustrating if you're a big network and you have 40 years of investment in their hardware, and they come out with a new camera that breaks all those relationships. That's annoying. But they don't have 40 years of having their cameras at a big broadcaster, so they can just make whatever they want. So in a lot of ways, Blackmagic reminds a lot of people of the way RED cameras were in 2006, 2007, 2008, where they were just, like, designing whatever they wanted. And the original Blackmagic cinema camera was sort of this interesting wedge-shaped thing, EF mount lens, so you could, you know, use all of the lenses that we all had on our 5Ds or whatever, and uh, you could slide in a normal SSD You didn't even need to buy special media for it. You slid in a normal SSD that you could just buy off Amazon that you might pull out of a laptop and shoot RAW to it, 2.5K RAW. Didn't quite take off. 2.5K was a weird format. They were a new camera company. There were some hiccups. But 
it sort of told us a lot about who they were going to be as a company. And then they kept coming out with cameras. They came out with a really big Ursa. And then they came out with an Ursa Mini, which is still a really big camera and shouldn't be an Ursa Mini. It should just be the Ursa. And then the original Ursa should be like the Ursa Super or something. Because the Ursa Mini, not that small. One of my criticisms of Blackmagic is naming. Uh, their naming is very confusing. But whatever. Ursa Mini, actually a pretty big hit. You're seeing them a lot of places. A lot of production companies own them. You're starting to see them on a lot of BTS videos. And they came out with a G2 of that, which does more slow-mo and a broadcast version of that. But they're real hit came out at NAB 2018, the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. Oh, I forgot to mention, like back in 2014, they came out with the Blackmagic Pocket, which was like a little tiny camera that could literally fit in your pocket and took a micro four thirds mount. So it was like this tiny little thing, but it could shoot raw. And so you would see it like Spider-Man Home, not Spider-Man Homecoming. One of the Spider-Man movies used it for all the shots, like where they strapped a camera to Spider-Man's chest flying through the air. Like it was a hugely popular camera when you needed raw quality imagery out of a tiny little unit. Blackmagic Pocket, super popular platform for that. Then in AB 2018, they came out with the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. Now, I hate the fact that this is called Pocket. I know why they called it Pocket. The original Pocket was for uh, Micro Four Thirds, and that was still Micro Four Thirds. So I get it, but it doesn't fit in your pocket, Blackmagic. You just, like, unless you're wearing, like, a giant parka. It's not a Pocket camera. But it was a huge hit for them. Twelve ninety five, which included Resolve Studio, which is $300 if you purchase it separately. Like, so if you're buying Resolve separately, you should almost just buy the Pocket 4K. And it did 4K raw internal with a, a real mini XLR connector and a real power input connector. And raw ProRes DNX recording. You could record internally to CFast cards. You could record externally to a thumb drive or a Samsung like T5 or 860 drive. It was all of the specs you want. We did. I did a review of it. I really liked it. I was... There were a lot of little ergonomic things that annoyed me. Like, if you want to put it on a Ronin S, you need to use an adapter plate because it's so wide. And there's, like, little weird things about it where I'm like, the, t the screen doesn't tilt. And there's no electronic image stabilization. I get why it's such a huge hit. It didn't make me want to sell my X-H1, which has internal image stabilization and a flip-out screen and EVF and all these things I really like. But I get why it's such a huge hit, especially RAW. RAW 4K for $12.95. Huge. And it's been a hit. I mean, they can barely keep them on shelves. They're everywhere. Uh, I was on a shoot two weeks ago and like people just showed up with them. Like they're a big hit. So last week, Blackmagic came out the Blackmagic Pocket 6K, which is 6K instead of 4K. It's a super 35 sensor. So it's bigger than the micro four third sensor. It's closer to what filmmakers are more traditionally used to from 35 millimeter motion shooting and has an EF mount, at which point you should stop calling it a pocket. I, I was annoyed by the Pocket 4K because it doesn't fit in your pocket, but I got that they were trying to honor the original pocket which did fit in your pocket. This camera doesn't fit in your pocket. The EF mount is massive. Nobody's pockets fit this. And it's EF mount, so you're not even honoring. This should just be the Blackmagic Cinema camera because that's clearly what's honoring. That was even one of the slides in their presentation was like, in, you know, honoring the legacy of the Blackmagic Cinema camera. I have a lot of mixed feelings. First off, all the good. I'm going to say all the good stuff. The good stuff is... Super 35 is a great sensor size. EF is a great lens mount. There's billions of EF lenses in the world. It's maybe the most common lens mount on earth. Uh, everybody owns them. I don't own an EF mount camera, and I have at least two EF mount lenses somewhere in this office. It's just a thing as a filmmaker. You accumulate them over time because there's a need where you're like, oh, I'm doing this thing, and I'll just buy this great 90 million, uh, $90 EF zoom that'll like do the job in a way that is really useful. So they're around. They're affordable. That's a good choice. 6K is great. Although, interestingly, initial reports are the 6K is only working in RAW. You can't actually shoot 6K RAWs, which makes sense, because 6K RAWs is not a really common format. 
you know, all the cameras that shoot above 4K are mostly RAW cameras. Like the Red has been doing it for five or six years, but that's always to RAW. 6K ProRes is probably a monster file, and it's probably too fast a data rate for the hard drive to write. Um, I don't. I mean, it's one YouTuber was reporting that they couldn't record 6K ProRes. It could have been their media. I need to dig into that more. But my assumption is that it has something to do with the fact that ProRes is a monster format to try and write in 6K. So that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, so it makes sense to me that it would be for RAW. Interesting stuff. All good things. Twenty four ninety five price point, which includes Resolve Studio. Really tempting camera package. But I've got a couple frustrations I do have to talk about. Hey, there's no perfect camera. Here are my frustrations. One, power. That Yes, there's an external power supply. But this 4K Blackmagic Pocket had notorious power problems. You know, uh, I taught a class in May Media, and one of the students who had just come off a class, they'd just done a two-week class that was on the Blackmagic Pocket. And I was like, oh, and we're going to test the Blackmagic Pocket a little bit. And he was like, no, please don't make me, please. Because he'd had such battery nightmares where the battery had run through it so quickly. This particular student didn't want to shoot the Blackmagic Pocket, even though it was a camera that could shoot raw, because he was afraid of the battery being such an annoying hassle to work with. Now, there's like a battery, uh, there's like an external battery grip you can put in that gives you two extra batteries, and you can always use external battery power. But if that was a problem at 4K, upping the pixels to 6K, it's going to continue to be a problem, and they're using the same power situation. So that's worry number one. Worry number two is... The thing I love about Blackmagic is that they're, like, so future-focused and free. In the Ursa Mini, you can swap lens mounts. You can be PL or EF or whatever. EF seems like the wrong mount for this camera. And we'll talk about RED and what RED is doing with their competitor in a minute. But it seems like it should have been, I mean, RF, which is Canon came out with the new RF mount. And RF is their shallower flange focal distance, larger slightly um, lens aperture, lens hole, uh format that came out last summer, which is their like full frame mirrorless format. Yes, there's not as many lenses, but for $200, you can buy an adapter from RF to EF that has internal NDs. So you can work with all those EF lenses you already own with internal NDs, which is cool because we all like internal NDs under day exterior. It's so much easier to click an ND setting and not just pop an ND on the front of the lens. So that's exciting. So you've got that and you've got, I can adapt as my, you know, handy dandy little PL to, uh, Fuji X adapter is showing in my hands right now. If you're watching on YouTube, I've got all my lens adapters. I can do RF to PL, RF to all of the, to the older legacy formats that have more flange focal distance. You're not going to be able to adapt from RF to X, say, because they're both really shallow flange focal distance formats. But all of those legacy formats that were built around having a mirror are available to you with RF that aren't with EF. Or they could have gone for L. L is the... Very similar to RF, but it's an open format that's being supported by Sigma and Panasonic and Leica. And it's like an open format they could have done that would have adapted easily to a variety of lenses and would have worked really well with, you know, Sigma art lenses and all sorts of stuff. That seems like more interesting. And also then the physical camera body would have been smaller and it maybe would have fit in your pocket. (laughs) Uh, There is one possible solution to this. It's not a solution. It still won't give you like PL mount adaptability. But Magic Booster has come out with a Magic Booster specifically for the Pocket 6K. Magic Booster is a weird thing. So if you guys don't know the Speed Booster, Speed Booster adapts like one lens mount to another and it has an optical element that like uh, concentrates the image and gets you more stop of light. Um, But the Metabone Speed Booster requires that there's space between the lens mounts. So you can do like PL to E, but you can't do like PL to EF. There's no room for a Speed Booster in there. Magic Booster 
says, all right, you have an EF lens. It's a little optical element that tucks in behind the lens. It won't work with every EF lens. It needs to be EF full frame lenses. But if it's an EF full frame lens going on the front, and then you've got an APS-C or Super 35 sensor in back, you get an extra stop of light out of it, and you get the full-frame look. It's giving you the full field of view of the full-frame lens on that Super 35 sensor. And they already came out with one for the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. So you can get that stop of light you're getting out of a speed booster in the 4K. You still can't adapt to PL. You still don't have that flexibility. I don't know. It feels like a touch backward-facing. Just a touch. The power is the big flaw. The EF is the, like, questionable, but I can see it. I can understand their thinking. Might have made a different choice. I also, I mean, we don't know. They could roll out for NAB 2020 a Pocket 8K that is L-mount. We just don't know. They are they are a dynamic company at the moment, and they're doing lots of crazy stuff. So that is our cover, my coverage of the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. Lots of interesting, exciting things, and a few things we're curious about. Up next, Blackmagic also revised Resolve. And I'm actually going to talk less about features in Resolve and more about a strategy they made with Resolve this year, which I think tells us a lot about where they feel like they are getting to with Resolve. Their traditional release cycle, and by traditional I mean three or four years now at least, is NAB, they announced the beta for the year. 12.5 beta, 14 beta, 15 beta, whatever it is, which is a platform you can play with it. it has all the new features, but but they're telling you by putting that beta name in it. And this is super confusing because, like, Gmail was in beta for 10 years or something. So a lot of people use beta to mean, like, strange things. But Resolve, Blackmagic uses beta accurately. They're like, hey, these are all the new features, but it's not super bug-free yet. But it will leave beta within a year usually, which is how beta sort of intended to be used. So the beta would come out in April or May. We'd work with it all summer. I occasionally do pro jobs in it, but only under very controlled circumstances. And then September, October, it would leave beta. That's been a good release cycle. They've rolled out a lot of features, but this year they did a little differently. 16 left beta last week. You can now download stable release 16, and then they released 16.1 in beta. Super confusing. I've already talked to really smart people who didn't catch that in the release. Um, I've like run into people and anecdotally been like, nah, you know, they went to the website and they saw that it was still beta. And I was like, no, 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 that's 16.1 beta. 16 is stable now. Why is this so important? Well, what they talked about in the release was that they wanted to fit the broadcast cycle. Because, you know, as much as we may watch our, all of our content streaming, the broadcast cycle is still a huge thing. September to May is still the TV season. And you are never going to get a broadcast engineer to roll out a new piece of software in October. What, however you are running in September is how you are running for the year. Because summer, and to a little bit holidays, is the time where you can, like, try a new piece of software, see if it works, test what the bugs are. But, like, they're never going to upgrade their OS in the middle of October. They're always going to wait till a slower time where they can deal with hiccups if they come up. The same is also true for academics. Blackmagic didn't actually mention academics in their presentation. I'm an academic. I know they have a big push for the academic market. I think academics also played into the decision. I hope. Maybe I'm flattering myself. Maybe it's purely for broadcast. But whatever, broadcast and academics are in very similar cycles. By going stable the first week of August, like my school, we teach our intro data class and Resolve for lots of reasons. And we are going to be teaching intro data and Resolve 16 this fall. If they didn't leave beta, probably this week or next week, we wouldn't have done it. We would have still taught in 15. Why? Well, because we wouldn't have had a chance to test it. We wouldn't be able to see how it works. I'm not going to upgrade all of our computer labs the day before the smart of the semester and then all semester long have horrible bugs that we're dealing with because we didn't have time to test and figure it out. So we're testing right now. 
with stable 16. And it is very likely we will be teaching stable 16 by the time that classes start in about two weeks. And that's why it's really interesting that they're willing to do a stable 16 with 16.1 beta. 16.1 beta also is interesting because I wonder when it'll leave. Like if 16.1 beta doesn't get stable till like December, what that really tells me is that they're actively rolling out features on a very aggressive cycle. And I, I, and I think it's likely that we'll then see 17 and 17.1 beta and 17.2 beta next year and the year after that, like there will more often, usually we've been in the habit of like, there's a result beta between April and September. I wonder if there's always going to be a beta we could play with at this point. Like when 16.1 goes stable, there'll be a 16.2 beta that will have crazier features. Um, some of the features are really crazy. So one of the things they did is, which I think is really interesting is, you know, we do this thing, uh, called multicam where I shoot five cameras on something say, and usually I have to go in and I group them all. And then I can sync by time code or I can sync by slate mark or whatever. They created a new thing called sync bins, which is anything I put in that bin, it's going to automatically sync by time code. So if I go out and I shoot a live event and I've got nine cameras and they all have time of day time code running. So they're all getting really good time of day time code using maybe something like the dish TC, which I reviewed back in June and gets time code sync from satellite GPS. I don't have to do anything. I bring them into the sync bin and the sync bin automatically syncs everything in that bin together, which is kind of cool. There's also a cool new boring detector, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a name made for headlines. It basically shows you areas on your timeline where you haven't made many cuts. There's going to be so many arguments about that. In truth, Long shots are very rare in media. Like when P.T. Anderson has a long shot or Tarantino has a long shot, it's noticeable because of how rare it is. The average shot length is like two and a half to five seconds. There's this great thing, the Bare Bones Camera Book. If you've never read it, it's a great book. It's like, it's very inexpensive. It's it's from the 70s. And he has this one exercise he has you do that's like, just stare at this box for me and see how long you can stare. And on average, you can stare at about five seconds before you look away. We can look at the same thing for about five seconds. A lot of those super long shots are constantly changing within the shot. They're panning, they're tilting, they're, you know, like those kind of things. There's continually new visual information to process. I think of the boring detector is less likely going to be like a boring detector and more likely going to be a revision detector. Like a lot of times you'll start an edit and you'll have a bunch of like 20 second shots strung together, linking all the scenes in a rough assembly. And then as you work to polish and fine cut, you'll start having, so you'll slowly see the boring detector turn off at tie light on sequences you've worked on more. And it'll be a good way to be like, oh, but I still owe a little time around minute five because I still, I see it, my shots are still running a little long there. I think it'll actually be a useful tool. I don't know if boring detector is the right name for it, but I think it will be useful. I do think it will be super controversial, especially because it's called the boring detector. Yeah, so that's coming out. All that stuff's coming out in 16.1, but 16 is now stable. All right, and here's the little thing that I don't know why it didn't get more press out of last week's releases from Blackmagic, but Blackmagic released the Blackmagic Raw Test. So what is this? So a little bit of context. It's very hard to figure out whether or not your computer is going to handle something easily. And we all get obsessed with uh, certain things that get marketed a lot. So a lot of people, this is less common lately, but a lot of people be like, ooh, I bought this, you know, I bought this hard drive because it's Thunderbolt 3, so that means it should be fast. But if it's just a plain old hard disk drive, like a spinning disk, Thunderbolt 3 isn't going to make that disk spin any faster. The disk is the slow part, not the connection, right? So, you know, we're always trying to figure out what the slow part of a pipeline is and what is it that's not handling the situation properly. And to that end, there were always a bunch of tools called disk speed tests. So you could run this disk speed test. Blackmagic made one, the Blackmagic disk speed test, and it would evaluate your hard drive and tell you how fast it could play media. Can it play 8K RAW? Can it play 4K RAW? Can it play 8K ProRes? Can it play 4K ProRes? Because hard disk speed was also often the bottleneck, right? Like a physical hard disk was slower than Firewire 400. 
So bumping it up to FireWire 800 didn't matter because the hard drive was slow. So going to Thunderbolt didn't matter. Going to Thunderbolt 3 didn't matter. The hard drive was slow. You needed to move to SSDs. And SSDs have a variety of speeds. So the, the Blackmagic speed test was a really useful way of getting information about one part of your pipeline, which is, will this particular drive play the media that I want it to play quickly? But that was only one part of the data, right? When you're evaluating whether or not you can do a job on a system, there's all sorts of elements that come into play. There's your CPU and there is your GPU. And all of these things work together to make a system operate effectively. And everybody has done a job at some point or another in their career where the heart, the machine wasn't quite up to the media spec. And one thing that would happen a lot is I would do a lot of jobs and we would be great at 1080 ProRes and everything would be fine. And then a client would come in and be like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this job 4K. And we'd be like, we need to do a test. And so we'd get some test footage from them and we'd see how our system would work. But it was very unscientific. The Blackmagic RAW test is a specific piece of software that is designed to tell you, to evaluate your system, the CPU and the GPU, and say, hey, here's the resolution of RAW that your system will be able to handle. And it'll actually tell you what the bottleneck is. It'll tell you, oh, your CPU can handle this res, but you would need a stronger GPU for this res. That's super useful. And it's a free app that Blackmagic just rolled out. And like, as I evaluate things, like there's many reasons why you would choose different RAW compression settings, right? Like sometimes you want a RAW compression setting because it'll have less noise than another kind. You should always test your RAW compression settings in your camera, in your lighting setups to try and decide where you want to put your RAW compression setting. But honestly, ease of use in post is is one of it. If I'm doing a shoot and I need to shoot all afternoon and it needs to deliver the next day, I want to make sure my computer can handle it. And maybe I will use a different compression setting in order to make sure that it can be used on a specific piece of hardware. If I own a laptop and I'm not going to buy a new setup between now and that when that job delivers, I want to make sure I'm choosing settings appropriate to that. Also, it might tell me, oh, hey, my CPU is totally powerful enough, but I need more GPU power. Maybe I'll buy an external GPU, which coincidentally, Blackmagic sells. So, you can also get other external GPUs. So I was really excited about the Blackmagic RAW test. I hope Apple comes out with the ProRes RAW test. They're probably not going to, but I really, uh, I would like it. I would like it if there were more diagnostic tools to help me make decisions about specking out gear and things like that. Because right now everything is just test, 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 test. Shoot and take it through post and see if it fails. And as I always say, a single shot test not right? You can never really get away with like, oh, I'm doing this new workflow. I'm going to shoot one test and take it through the workflow and make sure it's okay. You need to do a bunch of tests. But the more tools I have to help me troubleshoot those tests, the happier I'll be. And that's the Blackmagic Raw Tester, uh, free software available already for download. I downloaded it last week. So far, only Mac only. I don't know why, but we'll figure that out. All right. So instead of a Hey Professor this week, I'm just going to have Gossip Corner. Here's Gossip Corner. I mean, look, the two most, I'm obviously a Fuji shooter, and I think they're doing really interesting stuff with color space. But in the pure cinema space, like people who don't give a shit about stills, the two most dynamic cinema camera companies right now are Blackmagic and Red. I love Aerie. I shot on the Aerie LF two weeks ago. I love Aerie. Aerie's target market is not people spending $2,500 on a camera or $5,000 on a camera. Like, I think they're beginning price points 20 grand for the indie cinema space it's black magic and red are duking it out and it's really exciting to watch so why is this gossip corner so i want to talk a little bit about two different companies strategies for staying in the news cycle so black magic releases the pocket cinema 6k in a hour-long press release in which the ceo stands in front of a machine like stands in front of a monitor showing slides, talking about features, talking about history, talking about decision-making, talking about all of the things. 
There were no leaks. There were no hints. There was no pre-news. It was just, here's the thing. And then like three days later, people who were buying it were getting it shipped, which is pretty cool. And it's a different strategy than what Red is doing. So Red has their Komodo coming down the pike. If you don't know what Red Komodo is, it's because none of us know what Red Komodo is. There have been leaks of a little piece of the lens mount, which is going to be Canon RF, which I think is a good choice, obviously. Um, I'm excited about Canon RF because you can always adapt it to plain old EF. So it's going to be Canon RF. They just leaked their battery plate this morning, which it looks like it'll let you mount like two side-by-side plates, probably like two side-by-side cannons, which are batteries we all have. But maybe the, it, maybe you could buy different plates. Maybe it's two side-by-side Sonys. You could put little Sonys on there. It'll work with hydrogen, we think. And uh, they've been rolling leaks out for like weeks now. And it's like these little hints. I think there's three separate like super ultra macro shots of the camera have now been leaked. Yeah. There's the CF card thing. And now there's this and the battery thing and the lens mount thing and like a little post on red user. It is a different strategy. And I just like observing the strategies. I'm not going to, yeah, they're just different takes. It is different ways of getting attention. It'll be interesting to look back at Christmas when presumably the Komodo will be out and talk about who did a better job of getting our attention and market share. I don't know how we evaluate that. Like, does it matter who actually I do know it does not matter to me who we talked about more. It doesn't necessarily matter who we who sells more. I'm more interested in what cameras facilitate more interesting stories and Im- images getting captured and stories getting told. So I guess we're really talking about, like, let's look at Sundance 2021 and see, like, are there more crazy... You know, it's still going to be 80% Alexa Mini, but there's always going to be those oddballs. The, like, true renegades, we know no one, we made a thing. And, like, are there going to be more of those on the Pocket 6K or more of those on the Komodo? Or more of those on the iPhone? Uh, yeah. So that is my just like interesting little gossip corner about the strategies of red versus black magic in marketing. I mean, as a proper nerd, I kind of love the black magic, like here are all of our things thing. Um, but it is an interestingly different strategy. And I wonder if red is getting more people talking about it, but I wonder if more people talking about it will translate to sales and interesting images and stories. All right, everybody, that has been the weekend film tech for August 15th. 2019. First off, subscribe to this wherever you subscribe to stuff and tell your film nerd friends to subscribe to it if you were enjoying it. And then you guys can argue about my opinions together. You can sign up at weekendfilm.com for our email list where I like send out an email reminder with like links to articles that uh, are relevant to this. I only send out that little thing once a week if I remember to do it. You can find me on Twitter at Charles Hayne. You can ask me questions there for Hey Professor. You can check me out at charleshayne.com, which is my directing website. You can check me out at, you can follow me on Instagram at Charles Hayne or at Onreki, Onreki, O-N-R-E-K-K-E, which is like my more video film focused Instagram. Always check back every week. Tell all your friends. We can film tech, nerd tech podcast. All right. Have a good one.